0: This episode of the No Film School podcast was brought to you by Elements, human-centered media storage. Check them out at Elements.tv, the new centerpiece of your facility, which is so much more than just storage. You
1: know, Monday's my last shift. 38 years to the day. Yeah, I
0: don't know what we're going to do without
1: you, Stan. What do you know about this replacement of yours? Uh, except his name's Javon. Javon. What
0: kind of name is that?
1: Welcome to the No Film School podcast. I am No Film School founder Ryan Koo, and I'm really excited to bring you today's interview with Andrew Cohn, the writer-director of the new Sony Pictures release, The Last Shift. Andrew was a filmmaker with a background in docs who made the leap to narrative in a really big way with The Last Shift. The Last Shift stars Shane Paul McGee and Academy Award nominee Richard Jenkins, who you may know most recently from starring in The Shape of Water. It's a very relevant story of two Americas and how they communicate with each other or fail to do so. It's an odd couple pairing set in a working class fast food joint where an old white man who is retiring after 38 years is tasked with training his young black replacement. And that log line may sound a little bit unlike fast food. Uh, You know, it may sound like eating your veggies, but it's actually quite tasty. I'm bringing the dad jokes today. Uh, Seriously, though, The Last Shift has a really delightful touch with navigating these important issues. And Andrew shares all manner of writing and directing tips with us, including how he learned to overwrite and shoot for the edit, as well as how important it is to be empowered as a director by your collaborators. The Last Shift is in theaters. Yes, those are open in many places, September 25th, and it will be on VOD soon when we will rerun this podcast. I spoke to Andrew the day after his Sundance premiere, Uh, remember film festivals? (laughs) Long before the film was acquired by Sony Pictures for a release this fall. And just a brief note about the recording, uh, you know, it was a festival, there was a loud heater nearby, we had issues, but there are edits to deal with and all of you who've worked in film are aware of these kinds of location sound issues. So apologies for any bumps in the editing and the sound. But it's really kind of a masterclass from Andrew on how to make the transition from DIY nonfiction to big time narrative. Enjoy. Andrew, it's great to be here at Sundance with you. Yeah, it's good to see you. I was thinking about often as filmmakers, we see each other at festivals or at uh, you know pitch meetings, like the kind of speed dating things you go on when you're trying to get movies made, and I was thinking about with you, like I don't actually remember how we first encountered each other. That's probably a good thing. I th- it, was it so? Andrew made a basketball documentary called Medora, and I think maybe I backed the Kickstarter you did. campaign. You did,
0: and I remember walking the DVD and signed basketball over to your apartment and dropping it off into your mailbox because I wanted to save the two dollars and fifty cents on
1: shipping. So from such humble beginnings, Andrew is here with his film, The Last Shift at Sundance. I just watched it. Andrew's, the premiere was yesterday as we record this. So there's a madness around the festival and movies are being acquired and and all this stuff is happening. But what I really wanted to focus on with you is uh, you were a documentary filmmaker for many years and this is your first narrative feature. Did you always know that you wanted to, to do narrative or what was the transition? Uh, where did the transition come from? So I thought I wanted
0: to do narrative and I, I went to school and I studied creative writing and I, I don't think I really knew what it took right after college. So I, I wanted to be a screenwriter after college. This is, you know, I wrote my little script and got in my 1995 Jeep Cherokee and drove from Michigan to Los Angeles and... I had some minor success but was really struggling to find my voice and find my find my footing in Los Angeles and after a couple of years of really struggling i remember my mom saying you love documentaries why wouldn't you want to go make a documentary and because i would go you know i would go to the public library i was a documentary junkie and finally i just said i was just tired of waiting and i didn't have the resources or contacts to make a, an independent narrative feature film and i just threw myself into documentaries and just fe- totally fell in love with it i love talking to people i love being out of my comfort zone i love the immediacy of it and i love that you can just go out and do it if you don't have a lot of money our first film was just you know, me and my best friend davy rothbart some credit cards and some pretty cheap
1: cameras but that was like my film school and were you guys doing uh, shorter form, like branded content? Were you doing other stuff that was documentary like, or did you just throw yourself into a feature? No. I had written three screenplays at that point. So I had really
0: learned and, and come to understand story structure and character development and kind of the brick and mortar, block and tackle, you know, filmmaking tools. And I had then applied that um, to when I stepped in to fr- do my first documentary um, feature. But no, it was just learning on the fly. And Davey Rothbart, if you're not familiar with his work, he did a lot of stuff for This American Life. He was a little bit older than me, and so he had a, a little bit more experience. But I just felt like now's the time, and I didn't come from a place where... I had a big cushion, so I just I put a lot of pressure on myself on that first one. Like, this is it. I'm here. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to put everything I have into it. And it. the movie did really well. Stanley Tucci and Steve uh, Buscemi ended up executive producing it and won an Emmy. And then after that, it was just off to the races. And so that's what I did for the next 10 years. How many documentaries did you do in that time period? I was joking with my wife. I basically have been working on a movie or two since 2005. I did Medora, and then I did a, a film for ESPN for their 30 for 30 series. And then I did a film called Night School, which is at Tribeca. And then I did a couple shorts. I did some TV work for Vice. And then I did this big documentary series about three years ago for Stars. And so what was that called? Uh, that was Warriors of Liberty City. That was with LeBron James's company. And that was a catalyst
1: for me wanting to break out of that and challenge myself in a different way. In Hollywood, it's difficult to get an original project made, and very often everyone's interested in an adaptation of a short or a novel or a comic book or a documentary. Were you approached about doing a narrative version of some of your documentaries? Did you think that was maybe going to be your first narrative was based on one of your documentaries? I think every documentary I did had some form
0: of that. Medora, there was talk about doing an adaptation. My 30 for 30 was actually adapted into a, a narrative script that they're still trying to develop and, and still trying to make. Which 30 for 30? 30 uh, it's that? called Kid Danny. It's about Danny Almonte, the Little League pitcher who got caught cheating in the Little League World Series. And uh, Night School was optioned for the TV rights by Le- Leah Ram- uh, Ramini, the actress and Documentary filmmaker, it's hard once you put that much time into something on in a documentary. It's really hard to just say, okay, let's do it again, and to somehow fictionalize these people you know so well. I've never really had the gumption to like jump back in and do a narrative version of it. I think that I think there's a great world for more documentaries should be
1: made into narrative films, but it's never nothing I really had the desire to jump back into. And and you've done a lot of sports stuff. So not only were you making the leap to narrative from documentary, but you were also doing something that's not, I mean, there's, there's a little bit of a, there's some basketball references around the edges, which I appreciated. but the last shift is not a sports story at all. So, um, you know, how did you hunker down and say, okay, this is going to be the one. I always have used sports as just an entry
0: point into the lives of the people you've done some. Work in sports movies, and it's a, it's a great entry point. It's a great prism to explore so many interesting uh, people and themes. So I never really thought of myself as a sports documentary filmmaker. I did some music documentaries. I did some quote-unquote social issue documentaries, but I never really. I just thought of myself as a, a storyteller, just telling human stories, when they happened to be going to night school or playing basketball, and that was an interesting way of just finding an audience, and then subverting their expectations, it's, it's not really about basketball. And I love that like the ESPN series has done a great job in, in some of their early films of opening up some great themes. So I always just thought of myself as just trying to tell stories of regular people.
1: So. But You've also often also told stories about people and places that are not usually represented on the media uh, or through the media, whether it be New York and L.A. and the things we see a lot of. So was there inspiration based on where you're from, based on your hometown, or you're telling a story about... Fast food workers. Where did where was what was your endpoint to that? I was
0: having uh, lunch with a friend, and he said, "All your films have a similar theme, and they're all underdog stories." I never really thought about it before, but I do root for underdogs. Maybe because I view myself as an underdog. I didn't go to a fancy film school. Um, my path was not a straight path, and so I've always, and the films that I love, you know, have, have just been about people living on the borders of society. I've never really been one that's loved the big bio docs. I love these little movies that you find yourself in the kind of nooks and crannies of America. And being from the Midwest, of course, I wear that as a badge of honor. And I love being from Michigan. I've made films in Indiana. But it was just sort of an extension of wanting to um, just continue to tell stories of people that you don't see a lot. And I think that my experience is just i've always just been rubbing shoulders and hanging out with like i know all the people in my movie it's not them but they're taken from real people and when i got into making documentaries i was able to re- relate in these areas because i grew up in those areas so i, I don't i don't i think it's nice to, to stretch yourself but you also want to be um,
1: in a place where you feel comfortable and you have a voice and a common language it's the last shift a a new script or was it one of the ones you'd worked on while you were working on documentaries?
0: It was a new script. I I wrote it for about two years on and off. I did pull out some of those old scripts from before my documentary days and it wasn't pretty. I always say I've (laughs) done that too. (laughs) I always say an average screenwriter makes a great documentary filmmaker, but (laughs) it's not, I want to keep moving forward. It's hard for me to look back and I still get emails. I love Night School or I love Medora. Would you be interested in talking about a TV series? And I just I don't know, I'm
1: kind of interested in the future. Well, I'm sure you've changed as an artist a lot over 10 years. Yeah, exactly. So it's hard to be the person you were back then. So then uh, you write the script, and everyone knows you as a documentary filmmaker. So then what? How did you push the ball up the hill next? Doing
0: documentary, it's nice because you do have something to stand on. And there's such a great, I think, respect for doc filmmakers. It's funny, in just in an aesthetic way, You see the narrative films trying to emulate the docs in terms of that raw realism and and docs now trying to look more like narrative films. So I think there's a lot more crossover now. I I wrote the script with, I wouldn't say low expectations, but with the expectation that I wanted to write something contained that I could make for a very small budget. And I think it's just, I've always been pragmatic to the point where if worse comes to worse, I can raise a little bit of money and go shoot this with my friends. I don't know what that comes from, but I've just always taken that approach of getting it made is the most important thing. And I never wanted to put myself in a position where I was putting a lot of hours and a lot of time into a project that was just going to be a pipe dream, that was going to be a really hard to get made. And so I wanted to write something that was contained, that was from the world I was from, that I felt comfortable making the transition. And... I wrote this small script and it just started to snowball. I sent it out to a few producers. I got Alexander Payne, who's like probably my favorite narrative filmmaker of all time. I got his assistance email from NYU, a friend of mine that went to NYU. And I emailed him and I just said, look, I'm a huge fan and I'm, I'm from Michigan and I've been doing documentary work for the last 10 years. I'm writing my first narrative film. I would love to talk to you and, and see if you might want to help support the film as an executive producer. Didn't hear anything. And three months later, I'm on a hike in Mount Washington where I live, and the phone rings, and it's an unknown caller, and it's Alexander Payne calling me from Greece saying, Andrew, you big lug, I just read your script and I love it. I know this sounds a little grabby, but I was wondering if you might consider letting me direct it. And I'm like, it was longer, it was a longer conversation than that, And but after that you know it just sort of um we had a dialogue and uh we worked on the script a little bit together and he eventually had to take another movie and graciously said look i am not gonna be able to do this for a while i know you love this and wrote it for yourself i want to help you get it made and uh introduced me to uh ron yerksa and albert Berger, who are longtime veteran producers and produced nebraska and election and everything in between, and um, they loved the
1: script as much as Alexander did, and, and we were off. That's a great story because, obviously, if you look at this movie and you say Academy Award nominee Richard Jenkins is in it, and there's a number of recognizable faces in it, it's hard to discern, like, how do I get from where I am right now with this narrative script, never directed a narrative before, to there? and oftentimes there are official channels that you're supposed to go through, but you took a chance and emailed the assistant to somebody through a connection you got, and then three months later the phone rang and it panned out. So I I always encourage people like, what's the worst that can happen? It's that DIY mentality. You know what I mean? I think
0: that you have the same thing. If you have to do it yourself, you're not. You can't sit around and wait. And that's why I got into documentary. It was like I'm not just going to sit and wait for an opportunity.
1: Well, I had to wait because I didn't do like what you did is so smart, and we've seen filmmakers do it in the past. Where if you set a movie primarily in one location, you can go back to Kevin Smith with Clerks, filming in the convenience store. Yours primarily takes place in a fast food restaurant, so you know you can lock down a location there, and you film most of the movie there. I I wasn't wise enough to do that and wrote a movie that takes place in basketball gyms and stadiums and has action, which is why it took so many years to get it made. But on the other hand, the nice thing about your film is even if you do write that film to be makeable and small, you can cast it up. If actors are really enthralled with your characters and people really connect to it, then you you still have the upside. But by starting small, you gave yourself, like plan B would still be to make this movie, Right yeah yeah I think that that you're exactly right and and the key is
0: you have to be ready like writing all those crappy scripts doing all that documentary work you know Alexander could have picked up that script read 10 pages and been like nah I'm good throw it in the trash but I had worked and worked on my craft and dedicated myself I wrote 100 drafts of that script and so it wasn't like I was sending him something that I'd written 10 years before and saying hey help me make this but I think that now what i have come to realize is just if you can write a great script and there's actors out there that want to do it and that's the key is writing something that an actor wants to do and if you can get the right actor attached you can get your movie made
1: you know definitely and i think in this era of 100 million dollar comic book movies there are a lot of actors that can get paid and but It's maybe not as interesting to them, especially if they're going to play the same role for seven movies. So the people will be out there looking for something that's interesting and relatable and human. So, okay, now you've got this production company and you have great names attached. You're going to be moving forward into production, but the language of narrative filmmaking is new to you. Working with actors, the blocking, some of that, of course, you've done on documentary. What did you... What was keeping you up at night? What was intimidating to you about moving into narrative?
0: That's a tough question to ask. All of it, I would say, (laughs) be my short answer. I really talked to a lot of filmmakers and Alexander was one of the people that was so gracious with his time in talking to me about what me being a director actually means, what it means to be a leader on set what it means and how you communicate to your collaborators, what it means to empower your actors to take ownership over their work. And in terms of the technical parts of it, I was actually very surprised how well the skill set from documentary transitioned. When you're doing a documentary, you are flexing a muscle in real time of like character development and story structure and editing and pacing all in real time right there in the moment and then you get back into the edit and it's an entire different animal you're sculpting this narrative out of hundreds of hours of footage and in terms of the prep one of the things that I just told myself is I'm not gonna pretend like I know everything it's okay to talk to my director of photography Mott Hupful who was incredible and say I don't know the answer can you help me and one of the great things about the the people that I was surrounded with, whether it was the producers or my production designer or Mott especially, and even the actors, is that they were so gracious to say, Andrew, this is your film. You can't defer to us. I remember I had a conversation with Mott, and we were doing some storyboards. of. We, we shot the whole movie in 20 days, and so it was really important for us to find out You know what the what the trouble areas were what were what was going to bring us down what would we have to focus on and concentrate on we were doing a lot of work prior a lot of prep because we knew we had to be ready and it was all about the performances and and i remember on the third day i said whatever you think however you want to shoot this scene we can shoot it it's fine by me and he stopped me said no this is your movie it has to be your vision you have to tell me your ideas because other i've done it with a first-time director before where he just deferred and the movie suffered and so you want to find collaborators that aren't just going to steamroll you. And I think that the producers are really, these guys have produced so much, so many great movies and understand the process so well of what it means to empower a director and not neuter a director. And they let me make mistakes and
1: just let me make the movie I wanted to make, which is all you can ask. Yeah, it's it's not the, the top-down producing method of you have to do it our way. It's what is your... Inspiration or method or, or yeah. what works for you,
0: and those guys could have so many times said, "Look, we've done this so many times. You should listen to us." But they're such smart producers that they know that's not that the movie's ultimately going to suffer. You can't micromanage a director for an ent- that entire process. Ha- they have to own it, and they have to they have to be the leader on set. And I think that just working with Richard Jenkins is an entire conversation. That's a whole podcast in itself because it's just. What I learned from that
1: guy about acting I am just so grateful for I was gonna back up a second because obviously sure. you're you get into prep and you have the film cast but you'd written roles that were, are very uh, human and relatable and focus on everyday interactions conversations and in, between co-workers when it comes to time to cast these roles like obviously this movie could have been made as you said, on no budget with unknown faces once you get Alexander Payne and Ron and Albert producing. Now you have the opportunity to attach cast. What was the process like for for finding somebody like Richard Jenkins?
0: So we had some great casting directors who had worked on some movies with Albert and Ron who were very helpful. The first thing was who's gonna play the lead? Who's gonna play Stan? We had a list and we had a lot of conversations. Richard Jenkins was an actor that we felt embodied the role. Again, he, they didn't want to pair me with an actor that was going to steamroll me. He was known as a collaborative, nice guy. So that was also a bonus. I'm not going to lie. There were other actors on the list. It was like, they'd be really interesting. But, you know, putting a first time director with them, you could really, that could be an issue on set. And so, you know, Richard was always my first choice. He's from the Midwest and we sent it to him. He read it the next day and, and I got a call from his agent. He said, Richard loves this script and wants to do it. And after that, Shane, who plays opposite Richard, that was a big casting thing. We brought in just about every actor and some bigger name actors. And Alexander was also talking to me a lot about, you know, you hear castings 80% of directing. And I didn't quite understand what that meant until I got on set and I realized how well we had cast the movie and how much easier it made my job. And when I talked to Alexander, A lot of it was the type of actor. Do you want a comedic actor? And I had come to the realization through the process of casting Shane that I didn't want an overly comedic actor that was going to go for the joke all the time. And it ended up working out really well in the film. But there was an actor, this kid Shane Paul McGee, he came in and he won the role. He was just so natural and so likable. The camera loved him and they backed me on this. We thought it would be interesting to put a, a, a lesser known actor across from Richard. And and then Divine Joy Randolph, I was a huge fan of her, I reached out and we had a met and had dinner and, and really connected. And she came on board, Allison Tolman she's from Chicago and as we were shooting in Chicago so that was a nice draw for her so
1: it's just these kind of serendipitous you know serendipitous things I think it's all really great advice for filmmakers because it's the industry generally pushes you towards the largest name is going to guarantee the most box office even though of course there is never (laughs) any guarantee but the idea of Who is this person as your collaborator? Because actors, they can knock them out of the trailer or whatever can happen can go wrong on a production. No one's gonna know that, but it's gonna hurt the the film ultimately. And I would say to that point, when I got on set as a first time director,
0: being in lockstep with your lead actor, it relaxes everyone else. The producers, the crew, the other cast, they see that, okay, this well-known actor and this first-time filmmaker are all rowing in the same direction and are making the same movie. Everyone else is like, Richard Jenkins has done over 100 movies. And for him to, to, to trust you and to collaborate with you, everyone else is like, it's going to be okay. They, like, we trust this process
1: and if you're only shooting in 20 days you don't have a lot of time in directors blocking to say okay you know what this isn't working let's break it down let's re-rehearse it i'm going to change a bunch of lines and like you, you the, the clock is ticking did you have any rehearsal time or, or was it- yeah you know that again
0: it was my producers knowing the process and like first time director they built me out a week of rehearsals all just in the one location when the master location so vital just having the time with richard and shane to just hear it out loud, and I had, Mott and I had our ideas, and I think the key, and you hear this again and again, is preparation. Every scene, I had three or four different directions I could give an actor. Every scene, I had the blocking exactly how I wanted it, but I didn't hold on to it. I was open to the process, so then when we got in, we did the blocking, I said, this is kind of what I, my idea was, what do you think? And Richard, you know, it was a starting point for the conversation, you know? Of, well, I like that, but you know, I think he'd move on this line, or maybe he walks and says this, or maybe they just sit here, and you know. And I think that that was one of the things I really wanted, and I looked up to Alexander about is why well, I think Alexander is one of the best living filmmakers out there, as he takes all the cinematic elements that you see in great movies—blocking, pacing, performance, music—and he applies them to comedy. And that's why his films are so elevated. And so I was very conscious of those cinematic elements, making sure that we're not just having two people sit around and talk to each other, that we're concentrated on the pacing, the performances, the blocking, the things that really elevate a film. That was our focus. And and the prep we had in doing rehearsals was vital. I can't imagine going in blind on the first day and going, okay, what. Um, and it really
1: leads to collaboration, you know. And your intentionality in those areas comes through as opposed to just trying to scramble for time to, to make the day and to get out of the scene with the, enough coverage just to make it. So moving forward into the editing process, you've edited hundreds of hours of footage into a 90-minute film. And obviously this is very different, but you also have a tremendous amount of experience in the editing room, which is, you know, the, the third version of the movie. How did you find your documentary experience helped editing the narrative i would say the first thing is one of the
0: jobs of the director and i would say the most important job of a director is to understand the difference between a good performance and a bad performance and when you have sat down and done hundreds of interviews with real people and been in the room and watched real people fake it on documentaries and telling them hey you know you're kind of giving me what I need here, just be yourself and, and just observing human beings that long. It's really easy to just watch takes and go, no, nope, I'm not buying that rather than force something. And so I think the other thing was listening to the footage and letting the footage dictate what the movie is. You've heard this before, there's the film you write, the film you shoot and the film you edit and listening to the footage and not forcing a story Onto the footage, I think, was one of the big lessons I learned from documentary. I approach every movie like I'm starting from over, starting from scratch. And when I got him the edit, that's what it was. And and then all the things that you can pick up and read and you know, st- structure and all that stuff. But it was really enjoyable. I, I would say my, the, my favorite part of the process, one, I was so excited every day because it was so new. I was so terrified every day. I, the documentary thing, I, I felt like at that point I could do in my sleep. And it was I wasn't finding the, the challenge there. But yeah, I think my favorite part of the process was the writing process and the editing process.
1: Being alone with it and finally and finding the truth in it was really satisfying. Yeah, th- those are two of the most creative and intuitive parts of filmmaking because in production there's obviously always things going wrong and the weather is different and there's a lot of logistical execution based components, but when you're just having the idea at the beginning, and when, then when you're shaping stuff in the edit room, you know what you have, and you can make this tweak and see how it works, and you're not dealing with uh, losing daylight or, or whatever it may be. Having structured a story out of 100 hours of footage, and you, now you have a linear narrative with presumably far less than hundreds of hours of footage, did, did you find any sort of structural changes in the edit room? Or Yes. <laughs> yes. And that... goes back to my conversations with
0: Alexander. He shot 159 pages for Sideways. And he told me it's better to overwrite and overshoot and find it in the edit. He says, he always told me, shoot for the edit. And I never quite understood what that means. But I think there's a lot of young filmmakers that watch a movie and go, that's what they shot things got moved around. The opening scene um, of the movie is actually a scene that was two-thirds of the way, or a third of the way into the movie, uh, where he pulls up and the high school kids are there, and he serves the kids, the, the, the high school kids at the at the drive-thru window. Um, there were some things that we shuffled around, uh, some things, some problematic things in the first act that we, the first act was too long that we had to uh, address, but again, going back to what Alexander said, there's a lot of lines that were cut in the movie too. Just because I said, you know what, let's just shoot it and trust your coverage. If you don't like the line, then you cut it out, you know. And or look, this scene, I, I know we were shooting more. I knew that we were going to have to cut stuff. And there's four, five, six scenes more, but more than that, I would say seven or eight scenes in that movie that I love that I we'd end up cutting.
1: It was a testament to the, to the crew to, to shoot that much stuff in 20 days. It's also, it's a testament to you as a filmmaker that there's nothing about this movie that feels like, oh, this was restructured or, or it was re-edited. It all feels very tight and I can't wait to see what happens with the movie out in the world. So, uh, congratulations. And, um, is there anything else you'd like to tell? I mean, you've shared so many lessons. So, any one last bit of advice for for filmmakers i would just say that i remember every year
0: sitting in my apartment in brooklyn listening to this podcast and thinking when you guys were at sundance interviewing filmmakers thinking i love this podcast and i would always say god i can't wait all i want to do when i get to park city is like be on those podcasts you know what i mean and so it's great to sit with
1: you here and it's great to share the experience Um, so thanks so much for having me thank you andrew and i'm sure there'll be features in the future hopefully we'll have you on again Thanks. Great. Thanks for listening to this episode of the no film school podcast. If there's a theater near you and it's open and you can go see the last shift there by all means, please do so. If not, we will rerun this episode when it's out on VOD, as I mentioned, and check it out there. Thanks to Andrew for coming on and thanks to you for listening. Please make sure you're subscribed in the podcasting app of your choice. And uh, if you leave us a review, we'd really appreciate that too. Many more episodes of the no film school podcast Coming soon. Thanks again.